Look at how with my new translations and my new original compositions, there's little of the world left for me to fill. Look at my newspapers and monthly journals. The elderly and children, young men and young women are wise. They are writers. In a word, I am enlightenment and my people and times are enlightened through me, through my easy, sweet and perfected nature and texts. From now on, Armenians will gaze upon you like they gaze upon ancestral ruins. They respect your foundations, but only as the old stones of a temple of writing, now an unnecessary and unsuitable structure. Created by the Creator, I am pristine and perfected. Wherever I am, I am one and the same. But you, it's as if you were stitched together from the fur of a thousand foxes, each piece different, each shape unsuitable. In every land, in every region, in every village and city, you babble differently. Your newspapers and monthly journals, your new original compositions and translations, yes, they're like foam on water, like powerless ants, like gnats. They cannot compare with me. You set my limits and grave as the church, but the church is the master of the world. It's loftier than your civic life. The church does not grow old, young man. Time has no effect on the church, nor does it die. Therefore, I am immortal and exalted within it. You are listening to Haituk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Haik Minasyan, and we're just a couple of Armenians talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Welcome, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to get to speak with you today. Um, you are currently teaching elementary Western Armenian at Rutgers University, and you're currently working towards your doctorate in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at the UC- at UCLA. And your uh, dissertation is about Western Armenian language standardization uh, in the 1700s to the 1900s, correct? And um, which this is perfect because we've done a you know so far three parts on Western Armenia, and I think this is a perfect way to kind of uh, wrap up this mini series on Western Armenia, uh, shedding some light on the history of the Western Armenian language. So thanks again for being here with us. Thanks for having me, Hike. So you were just reading us a satirical like a uh, dialogue between a father and a and a son or whatever a child, mm-hmm. um, and each one was kind of playing. Apart, right? Could you break it, like, explain a little bit about what that just was? Sure, sure. So, what I read was just two exchanges from an article. It's probably about eight pages long. Mm-hmm. It was published in 1862 by a very young clergyman who later becomes quite a famous priest, ethnographer, writer, Karakin Servantians. Okay. So, this is when he's still relatively young in 1862, and he pens this. Uh, this exchange between a personified classical Armenian and a personified modern Armenian. And this is almost at the height of the debate that we'll get into later. Right. No, so that's interesting. Standardization already, 1862, already in it. You know, so uh, when I, uh, you know, thought about this subject beforehand, uh, I wasn't sure where to really place it on the timeline. So um, we'll definitely get into it more. But I did want to quickly, you know, talk about your background a little bit. Um, so, uh, this is very, you know, usually like with your dissertations, they tend to focus on, on a certain part of Armenian history and you're not a linguist, you're a language historian. Is that a right way of saying it? Kind of? Yeah. I would say so. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how did you become first, you know, interested in this subject, Western Armenian or even standardization, Armenian history? Standardization came later. So I was, I first got into the topic that became my dissertation through translation. Mm. So I started studying Armenian when I was an undergrad, and I did some translation as part of my BA thesis and sort of continued it after graduation and through my master's. And all while I was uh, translating, usually um, 19th century, sometimes early 20th century writing, I had a lot of questions about the type of language that I was seeing. It varied so dramatically from when I was translating a text in the 1880s to just 10 years later, 20 years later. The actual Um, language itself was different. Because you didn't learn Armenian growing up, right? You learned it later on in university. I did, yeah. So you're coming at it from kind of like a fresh perspective and analyzing it in that way. 
and and you started seeing that difference and you're like what's going on here you know and it's because i wasn't a native speaker yeah. that i had a lot of questions mm-hmm. that maybe somebody who was born into armenian or born into an armenian you speaking it. <laughs> right yeah. it's just something maybe you've heard it here or there maybe you've read it and it's just the status quo but um, for me I needed to parse it out for myself. Yeah, because you're coming at it with a, a academic mindset, and um, I mean, it. Whenever we were in uh, high school, or whenever we're learning French, and you know they're telling us all these grammatical rules and terms for the grammatical rules, I'm like, you know, I have no idea what these mean because when we learned Armenian as kids or in elementary school, um, you know, you just kind of already spoke it at home, so you just understood it that way. Um, and so I could kind of see that where if you're able to come at it with a more analytical thing, you're going to see the, I don't know, the differences there and want to know why. Yeah, you're going to see the inconsistencies. Maybe we're just assuming, you know, oh, that's how grandma talks or that's what I hear at church and you're just, you know, you're not really uh, more curious about it than what you could be. Some people are obviously so. All right, so, uh, uh, you know, you got interested in it. You know, you found an opportunity to really dive dive deep into this subject um and so your focus is on uh 1740 essentially to 1910 uh Mm -hmm. yeah um this period of western armenian standardization um but to kind of bring everyone up to speed could you kind of break down the phases of the armenian language up to this point sure so i should say uh at the get-go standardization is a very long process and when it began in the mid 17 i wouldn't i don't even want to say it began in the mid-1700s. Yeah. It really had its heyday a century later. But when we're looking retrospectively, we actually see what became, what was the groundwork of something that came later, right. even Certain though those events. people, yeah. right, at the time, were absolutely not interested mm-hmm. in standardizing any kind of vernacular or spoken language. Mm-hmm. But to get back to your question about the phases of Armenian, When we look at the history of the language, people ordinarily break it down into three big chunks. Mm -hmm. So we have classical Armenian, we have middle Armenian, and then we have modern Armenian, which from there we have our two standard branches. Right, Eastern and Western. Um, Karapar, which was the classical Armenian, Mm -hmm. that's what they, you know, you'll hear in church still. They still speak it, the clergyman and the the church. Uh, Middle Armenian, medieval times, Gilikia Armenia, Bagraduni. Would Bagraduni, I guess it would be. Bagraduni is a little bit before. Yeah, a little few hundred years before, but medieval Armenian, when they say like Middle English too or whatever. (laughs) Um, and, And then, you know, after the Renaissance Enlightenment period, we start getting to the modern era language that we know as Armenian. However, I mean, from our talk with Shushan uh, Karapetyan in the first season, you know, she explained it how there really was, you know, this not this big divide of Western Eastern. It was very much just every region had its own dialect and some were more similar to the other geographically maybe. But it wasn't until the standardization that, you know, we created an official Western and Eastern kind of group. Is that correct? Definitely, definitely. So standard languages are engineered languages. Yeah. These aren't languages that... Naturally, emerge. organically emerge. No, yeah. they're very uh, <laughs> deliberately cultivated. Yeah. The architects of the language choose what they'd like included and what they'd like excluded, which is the right. focus of my dissertation, what they want excluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's difficult for us nowadays is to... Think about how at one time there were very uh, distinct spaces in your life where you would use certain forms. So Mm -hmm. people wrote, people who could write. That was an extraordinary skill in in Ottoman times to be able to read and write. Yeah, (laughs) up until like 100 years ago probably, you know. So those who could write just knew that they would write differently than the way that they spoke at home with their mom and their siblings and their dad. I mean, we still do that when we write an essay for school. We're not writing it like how we talk at all, you know. What I did want to ask was um, just to, to kind of paint a picture of maybe what are the simple differences between Western and Eastern. How would you describe like the grammatical or linguistic differences between the two dialects? So um, there are grammatical differences. Right. That's the main one. Right. So declensions, which is a term that you would know if you've studied the language formally. Those mm-hmm. are... Um, this, is that the sound versus eats oh. so tobrotsen versus tobrotsits mm-hmm. 
there's also that third letter that we can't pronounce in Western Armenian that they can pronounce in Eastern Armenian. Yeah, right. So phonological mm-hmm. differences, the mm-hmm. way that you pronounce certain letters of the Armenian alphabet. Obviously, the Armenian alphabet is used to write both Eastern and Western Armenian. Yeah. There are some uh, orthographic changes, so spelling differences mm-hmm. because of um, changes that happened during the Soviet well, period. Well, I, I feel like that in itself, the fact that you know the same letter can be pronounced in two different ways is itself kind of proof that the written was separate or different than the spoken, you know, on its own there. Uh, not less necessarily proof, but uh, another way to kind of like picture that. Um, and then we say g, but what would we call g? Uh, so those are grammatical those differences. Those are grammatical differences. Yep. And then uh, and the little things here and there. Um, and then, you know, Eastern Armenian is what's spoken in Armenia and in Iran, Republic of Armenia, and then a lot of the diaspora speaks Western. But at this time, you know, that you're studying, would you say the... The I don't not the majority, but the bigger Armenian world kind of I feel like geographically at least was kind of placed within the Ottoman Empire, you know. And uh, Western Armenian was a major Armenian language at this time. Would you say? Uh, no, not I at all. It absolutely, was not. It, what, but in comparison to maybe Eastern Armenian or in general, but I don't know. So there wasn't a unity of language. Huh? No, I mean Armenians in the Ottoman Empire spoke sometimes monolingually, just Turkish, a language that was not Armenian. Yeah. Uh, and then those that did speak varieties of Armenian spoke regional varieties of right. Armenian. Western Armenian was not a spoken language until the very, very end of the, the 19th Empire. century, yeah. and even then not universally. So if you were very well educated, if you were from a family that deliberately um, strove to teach your children uh, what was a very purified form of the language that didn't include very many borrowings from other languages, which was a staple of, of spoken language at that time, no matter what uh, variety of grammatical variety of Armenian you spoke. Could I mean, if you learned, let's say, the, the Istanbul, the Constantinople standard of Western Armenian, and you wanted to go to the nearby village of Armenians and try to communicate with them, you think they'd have a hard time? I don't know. So we see the difficulty that people describe uh, migrants from the eastern provinces coming to the capital. And trying to talk to the Armenians there. Very difficult. They're using slang words, they're using Turkish and Arabic and whatever words in their language. The the people from the eastern provinces maybe. So the borrowings wasn't really the issue. It was the grammatical differences between those varieties of Armenian. Because think about how geographically separate those places are. We're talking about the Ottoman capital, we're talking about Constantinople, I mean, and then on the other side. far yeah. away, almost by the Russian border, we have places like Van, places like Gars. Yeah, yeah got in. Um, no, it's true. I mean, so then do we know the, so this Constantinople, uh, let's say Armenian dialect or variety, um, do we know which, does it have a place in historic Armenia, quote unquote, or uh, was it just its own dialect that emerged over the centuries and they kind of pieced that thing together and made that the standard? So this is a question that's still being uh, researched. It's still sort of being debated. There are some people that um, advocate for the idea that the Armenian variety of Constantinople that, that, that didn't become the basis for the standard, though we should distinguish the spoken variety of Constantinople from what became the written standard, because right. they were very different. Um, Harache Ajarian, who was a very... He's one of the main guys in the beginning. Very well-renowned linguist. Yeah, Parisian, French-Armenian. Right, so he was one yeah. of the few Ottoman Armenians that uh, was a trained linguist, a trained philologist. He broke it down. And he wrote a lot about different uh, varieties, different dialects of, uh, of Armenian, including his native one, which mm-hmm. was the, the dialect of Constantinople. And he, from his research in Nor Nachichevan, which is up near uh, the Crimea. Rostov-on-Don now, that's what they call it, right. Rostov, yeah. So he saw uh, the starkest parallel between the variety of spoken in Constantinople around the year 1900, and Rostov-on-Don. That's interesting. Yeah, so what you have to do there is uh, dig back into history and try to figure out why would there be such a connection? Well, maybe it was like the merchants or like just the fact that they were by the water and maybe it was moving around that way. But regardless, that's interesting. And I think it's so like the fact that one kind of dialect just ends up being at the right place at the right time and it becomes the standard for everybody. Um, and uh, and I did want to ask actually earlier if, uh, you know, this this standardization process was 
becoming a thing around this period in all countries in the area mm-hmm. or okay and I, I feel like it's a natural evolution of a nat- nation quote-unquote exactly. right it has to do with the process of nation building right administration and this and that and creating a bureaucracy and uh, we need to have a communication tool between everyone it leads me to my next question just to simply maybe like uh, spell out the definition you know how would you describe standardization of language Standardization is like you described, yeah. choosing one variety for your people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, deciding what will be included and what will be excluded. So we have the grammatical basis. Usually around the world, it's the variety of the capital of mm-hmm. your country or the variety of the place that is the most economically booming commercial center, that kind of thing. So like practical, like... Uh, it's not just like maybe we like this one more than the other, but that this is, this uh, dialect is probably the, the most practical of them all because it either helps with communicating with everybody or it's where the home base is. I, I know that Parisian became, you know, the French standard, right? And all the mm-hmm. other dialects of French kind of disappeared over time. Not French, you know, but the languages of that area. No one talks about Occitan and uh, Walloon and all these other small languages that existed in France that kind of disappeared over time because of the standardization process. Um, so what's, so, you know, before we get into the Armenian example, let's say, um, and you're saying that, you know, there's a process of kind of deciding what's going to be in this language, what's not, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but from what you've researched, you know, what has the common kind of like, uh, again, phases been for something like this? Is it a government comes together or is it like a, uh, intelligence? So that's the very interesting part about the Western Armenian case. Uh, In other places, like in France or in Italy or in Spain, there are language academies. So Mm -hmm. there are people that come together, sometimes part of the government, sometimes not. funded or not, yeah. And uh, what they do is they formally decide together what will be included in their dictionary of French or what will be included in their dictionary of Italian, and then they disseminate that through their national school system. Mm -hmm. As we know, in uh, Ottoman times... Western Armenian uh, couldn't have been disseminated that way because there wasn't that kind of structure. It was unofficially a language people spoke, and so you're saying it was decentralized the way we went about it. it. Very decentralized, very haphazard. (laughs) But in the 1700s and early 1800s, mid-1800s, there were very few people involved in this process. Uh, a lot of them knew each other. A lot of them were writing either in agreement or disagreement uh, in newspapers. They were responding to what their colleagues had to say. But these were concentrated in intellectual centers like Constantinople, Smyrna, um, Venice, and Vienna. That makes sense. Um, yeah, just the you know talking at the coffee coffee shops or whatever, writing to each other in the newspapers. Um, but I want to emphasize that this is this is at the level of the intellectual elite. These conversations not the were commoners. irrelevant to other to people who were not they probably didn't even know what was happening. Probably you know, didn't know. What was happening. And then fifty years later, they're like, "Oh, they made this." You know. Uh, well, then let's talk about that. Where you know, ninety five percent of the Armenians, ninety eight, who knows what the percentage is that just live in you know the regular towns and villages. Even if it was in Istanbul, the common folk, let's say, um, you know, uh, what they were speaking mostly what not a standardized language just what they learned in the home exactly right exactly and And then if they went to school they would learn uh paradoxically they would learn classical armenian in school up until the 1880s or 1890s so they would learn the uh, an unspoken form of armenian that wasn't spoken anymore but it was the form that was used in church well so if they wanted to write in armenian and they didn't know, let's say, speak Karapat fluently, like, would they just kind of guess the letters to what they usually say at the home? You know what I mean? Um, uh, let's say you wanted to write a letter to a family member in mm-hmm. uh, in Armenian, but you only learned Karapat in school, and you speak uh, you speak your Parpat at home, your right. own dialect, where they just kind of piecing it together, guessing the letters and stuff. You would yeah. write in your own dialect if yeah. you were writing just a personal letter. Mm-hmm. But if you were writing for the press, if you were writing for newspapers... Yeah, well, because the, there's published books in the Ottoman Empire just full-on Turkish by Turks, but they would use the Armenian letters, you know, and just uh, phonetically use our letters to, to, to communicate as a tool. Um, and Those were I, also written by, so that's called Armeno-Turkish. Yeah. And it was quite a robust 
had quite a robust literary uh, tradition, especially there's in the a late. lot of it. There's, there's a, a lot. lot of it, and there's a variety of different genres. So people would read European novels in Armeno Turkish. People <laughs> Armenians would translate those novels. Monte Cristo, Count of Monte Cristo, Armeno Turkish, Alexandre Dumas, different yeah. uh, adventure novels, Three Musketeers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were all translated into Armeno Turkish. Interesting. Well, because because what I'm you know was getting at is like they're you know just kind of whatever they speak they're kind of just putting the letters to it right it, it's not they're not kind of doing it based off of the, if this is the correct spelling for this or this is the grammatical rule definitely it's not. just the common tongue okay so could you like tell us a little bit more about what the common armenian language kind of sounded like or you can't even call it maybe sure. armenian but the common tongue let's say so i'm gonna read you a passage that was published in a journal called pasmavep which was published in Venice. It was a Mkhitaryan publication. Mm-hmm. This is the first year of the journal, which continues to this day. It's still published, what, what year I was think, it? uninterruptedly how, until this day. How long ago was it again? This is 1843 it Bam. was established. Oh, my God. And in the early years, they wrote almost constantly about language. In every issue, there was an article about the importance of speaking Armenian, the challenge of choosing... The Mukhitars, this Mukhitars journal. So Mukhitar has passed away at this point, sadly. Right. Mukhitar died Mukh- in 1749. The, the Mukhitarists or whatever, the Mukhitarians, right. yeah, yeah. So the journal at this time was a priest called Kapriel Ivazovsky. Oh. Ivazian Ivazovsky. Any, any relation to... No, his brother. No way. Yeah, the painter? I, Ivan Ivazovsky was his brother. Damn, what a family. <laughs> what a family. I know. And they're expressing themselves a lot. No, um, uh, so the real fast, because uh, we talked about it in uh, Daniel's episode about the Catholic Armenians and uh, Mechitar uh, going and establishing this uh, monastery, this, uh, uh, not sect, right, I guess, uh, Catholic Armenian right in uh, Venice. And they became an educational hub and were really like a foundation for Armenian national identity. And I guess the proof of that is in these like, you know, discourses they had about language and what is Armenian, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, let's, let's hear the, what they had to say. So the way that this was published was they have side-by-side columns of the spoken language and then oh. what I call the purified vernacular, so the early form of what becomes Western Armenian. Interesting. So I'll read for you what they call Bosetsvot's Lesvin Orinag, an example of the language of Constantinopolitans. Mm-hmm. Nachelgenenki, Meg Orma, Bütün Turchenerun Takavor Dervelu Gelameer, Filan or Filander, Bütün Turchenere, Biriknish Elanki, Mechvenin, En Yachesheklen, Vornene, Anigak Takavor Ella, Budor de Yi Telalgaganche. I understood it was about birds. It's about birds. <laughs> There's a king of the bird, maybe, but. Uh, I could barely understand that. That's crazy. That's so. That is a, like an example of a common, maybe an Armenian speaking, huh? So we shouldn't say common, Armenians maybe. across the board, right? Because we do need to to focus regionally. But that for this region, for Bolis was mm-hmm. in the Bolis. Yeah, that could be what a common Armenian sounded in the eighteen forties. Huh? In the eighteen forties, crazy. Right, so they the, were particularly harsh with uh, Armenians from Istanbul. They said that they're. Uh, Armenian was uh, there's a Mkhitaryan grammarian called Arsen Aydinian and he writes this uh, he writes a grammar book but for me what's the most uh, interesting part of the text is this 300 plus page preface that he writes on the history of Armenian and he says that um, there is probably not another language on earth or another variety on earth that um, used as many borrowings as the Constantinople variety of Armenian, except maybe Maltese, which is known to have to be an amalgam of different... Well, he obviously didn't know English yet, because English, I feel like, is also up there with just <laughs> being amalgamation of every language in the world. But um, I was about to say just 300 pages of... Uh, uh, tearing up what uh, Bolis Istanbul Armenian, but luckily the whole thing isn't just I, I, digging yeah, into Then you're them. like, it's the history of the Armenian language. Right. But <laughs> I was like, okay, good. It was like, oh, 300 pages. Um, so we got a good idea of what that sounds like, and then uh, let's hear the Western Armenian standardized version of that same text now. 
Gabadmente orma polor turchunerun takavorma turvelu olalov karos gagartatsvin tesa oras sadere polor turchunere jorvin vor mechernin amenen keretsiga vorene aniga bidi undervi takavor. So I understood that. A little um, bit easier to understand for us. I can't, right? I can't help it. You know, we learned the standardized version. But if you noticed, uh, in this, so I, I mentioned that this uh, was published in 1843. Mm-hmm. And what I want to emphasize is that things that maybe we today think of as impure, and I'm putting that in quotes, yeah. at that time was not an issue. So today, a lot of purists have an issue with the word ne. Ne. And in this passage, we see it. And even in this uh, this selection that they're calling... The purified version. The purified it version. has it in there. We have it in there. In the 1840s, nay was not a problem. Well, I heard it in the other, the, the common tongue version too. Right. Uh, which was, that's that's why I would say, oh, look, it's both in there. But I didn't even notice it uh, in the, the, let's say, the, the standardized version. Well, so then, you know... How did they go about deciding this in the first place if they were missing things up to this point? You know, uh, what were the rules and who were creating the rules? So that's a great question. Yeah. Who was creating the rules? Like not the Mukhitaris or they played a part in that? No. It's this way yeah. after them. Uh, no, they're still around. Oh, yeah. They're well, still around I mean, I in the mid-19th century. Like, they're still around now. Well, they are now, but like they, they were part of the discourse. Huh? They were part of the... Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Um there isn't a rule book for purification. There isn't a rule book for standardization. It's just what that guy thinks. <laughs> it's kind of what that guy thinks. And if that guy has power, and if that guy thinks a certain thing is impure, then that is going to uh, be rejected. The unfortunate part about ne is that people think it's Turkish, and at that time, people thought it was Turkish. People probably still think it is. I people know. probably still think it is. People stigmatize it as, as if it is. But... Ne is found in Middle Armenian. Yeah. Ne is found uh, in a variety of Armenian that predates any contact with Turkish. Interesting. But this is a great example of how sort of arbitrary some things... Right. Uh, Off perception or like a, you inst- know... Uh, the, an, an instinct or... An emotion. An emotion. That's sort Not of what guides. Fact, yeah. yeah, this isn't a scientific... Right, uh, very rigorously peer-reviewed kind of process, and it's kind of concerning that you know that's the the process is something that's not so standard. It's funny that standardized process isn't that standardized. Um, you know what else could have they gotten wrong, or you know what else could they have? Uh, you know this decision making could be concerning if it, you know not the wrong guys in charge, but uh, you know. But, but I it's guess it's good to keep the focus on the fact that this is a. This is a process that is a human endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is an ideology that's produced by individuals with a certain uh, agenda. But do you think it had to happen eventually, though? Like, no, it I didn't don't. happen. Standardization no. didn't happen. So standardization <sighs> likely would, would have, have happened, happened still. But the way they went about it could have been different still. It, it could have been more inclusive, more flexible, more uh, redefining what maybe Armenian language could have been, you know. Definitely. There's no reason why Interesting. But the, then, this spoken version that I read couldn't right. have been what became this, uh, the standard variety. Well, look, I, I get now that, especially after genocide, after exile, after like, you know, everything, we're not even in the homeland anymore. There's definitely an instinctual emotional thing going on with Turkish or with Turkey, mm-hmm. but and in sure it's always been kind of a second class oppressive kind of uh, uh, kind of let's say situation for most Armenians. You're still the conquered at the end of the day. It's not your uh, identity that's on the the you know the top billboard. But um, I mean, was there a um, kind of this you know Nakhan Sutun? Not Nakhan Sutun. Was there this animosity? towards our uh, Turkishness, even earlier on, 1700s? So in the 1700s, there's no um, sort of xenophobia. There's no um, targeting of Turkish specifically. But there is a desire to polish the language and to what they call refine it. But that's not driven by the same ideology that we see in the 19th century. Because nationalism wasn't really even that much of a thing up to this point. Maybe it was like slowly kind of coming, becoming a thing. But uh, I like national identity 
wasn't as clear cut as it is now or in late, later in the 1800s. So it makes right. sense. Who was a Turk? Who was an Armenian? It wasn't so clear cut. Maybe it was religious, you know, at the end of the day. With language, what the Mkhitaryans unknowingly did by writing some of the first texts that we have in this vernacular form based on the variety of Constantinople is unfortunately what led to their undoing. The Mkhitaryan order, their main project was to cultivate the use of classical Armenian to spread knowledge of it through their schools, through their publications. They're known for producing these tomes, these huge dictionaries. So they're trying to bring back classical Armenian. They're trying to bring back classical Armenian. But in doing so... (laughs) But what they do is that they take this spoken version, and what they do is they put in the classical equivalents of some of the borrowings used. And that becomes the basis for what happens later on in the 19th century when cultural nationalism begins to gain momentum. And the Mkhitaryan's work that predated nationalism suddenly takes on a new meaning. And Mm -hmm. that's where we see some of the direct animosity towards Turkish and Armenian. Mm -hmm. But I want to emphasize here that at this time, there was no call to stop speaking Turkish. A lot of Armenians, especially in the capital, were bilingual in Turkish, if not monolingual in Turkish. Yeah, the Longde commune, whatever. It was a common language. It was, uh, you know, and I always tell myself, it's how we speak English today in America. I mean, uh, it's... The government language you're going to speak it it's fine yeah and at that time again sure it's not you know utopia but uh it wasn't the same feeling we have now or in the late 1800s we're dealing with the you know the the digressing the it's a different Ottoman situation Empire. yeah altogether. it was a different time yeah. it could have even been i mean i always kind of think about that 16th 17th century ottoman empire could have been kind of like armenian heyday to you know things were good business was good maybe and um so what and, we read are people you know, saying Speak Turkish. Speak Turkish on your business. It's going to lead to prosperity for Armenians. But that's with the caveat that Armenian needs to be in every Armenian's repertoire. This is the first time that we're hearing about the importance of the Armenian language for a kind of Armenian identity. Before, identity was was based, from what we know, was based more on religious belonging than language use. Yeah. What was the kind of the the feedback, or, or I guess we can kind of start with... Uh, it moved where next? So the Mukhitarists were kind of producing these early uh, works based off of uh, early standardization, would you call it? I mean, was there... So there was no hope, there was no drive to standardize. What they were really trying to do was to introduce, especially children, to reading, which was new to them, to read the written word, and they were trying to lead them gradually to classical Armenian. And that's why... We see so many of these replacements yeah. in the texts of uh, Turkish words. Was their motivation religious purely, you think? Or what was the motivation to make it more accessible or, you know, bring, uh, you know, uh, reading to, you know, the greater Armenian population? What was the goal there? So there was definitely an aspect of evangelism. Yeah. So they, these were Catholic Armenians. They wanted to increase their numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's interesting about the Mkhitaryan orders, there's also that Armenian element. There are Armenian Catholics at this time that belong to the Latin Rite. Right. They bel- they pledge their allegiance to the Pope completely, but completely to the Pope. And many of them, and this is why Catholic Armenian history is so interesting, many of them deliberately distance themselves from Armenian as a way to show their Catholicism. Right. Uh, and from the Armenian language, I should say. Well, they, they it, it, we saw that we talked about it again in uh, in Daniel's episode, where you know if you were part of the cat or if you came off Catholic, if you were identified as a Catholic Armenian, you would be referred to as uh, a Frank. You know, it, it was very much based on your identity. And then what was special about the Mukhitaryans, the Mukhitarists, were that they were like we're Catholic, but we're also very Armenian. And I think that intersection there is what you know again played a role in them uh, kind of uh, developing the whole national identity of what Armenian is because they were in this in-between kind of zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very interesting, and it's, it's, it's crazy that, you know, 
uh, you know, what would we be without this uh, this island around Venice uh, today? Because they were, it seems like a lot of it kind of started with them. It's and really I, hard for me. I've thought about this a lot. Yeah. It's really hard for me to imagine what would have happened without their work and without the sort of ideologies that they produced, the discourses around language that they produced, just the sheer industriousness of the, the monks, the amount that they published is truly remarkable. Well, so, I mean, was there anything then, you know, what, what would you say was wrong with them? Or not wrong, but, you know, because uh, obviously, you know, changing the language, standardizing it, changing it up, some people were going to probably be like, why, or I don't understand this, or why are we changing it? But, I mean, is there anything inherently uh, wrong with trying to uh, standardize the language, make it more, uh, I don't know, communicative or more standardized? Well, yeah, I mean, with standardization, and this isn't something that's specific to Armenians, oftentimes we see that spoken languages disappear. Right, the dialects, the local dialects, 100%. Um, but then if it's going to happen anyway, but it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't necessarily have to happen. Yeah. But what people normally point to is that without a standardized language, it's hard to spread education. It's hard to have Modernize, a press. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I keep thinking about the printing press and maybe this is just a technological factor is what kind of drove uh, not just the Mechitaris and publications, but also um, the standardization of the language in the first place. Um, it didn't drive it because the Armenians had had the printing for, press for quite years, a long time. Yeah, right, 1500s, 14, 1500s. Um, so what was the next phase of this era of uh, standardization? Um, who took it on next? We were talking a little bit about how the in- intellectuals of uh, Istanbul and the intellectuals of you know, you know Venice and these towns, uh, were they the next holders of this uh, task? Mm-hmm. So the Mkhitaryans definitely don't disappear. But the the theater sort of shifts from Venice and Vienna to Constantinople and Smyrna, which mm-hmm. is modern day Izmir. Yeah. So this is about 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. We see more and more laymen. Before these texts were written mostly by priests, mostly if not Catholic priests, then yeah. uh, apostolic priests. But more and more, we see an educated cadre of uh, of young men who took this up within the context of a cultural nationalist movement. Were students, uh, artists, or also like bourgeoisie businessmen? What would you say? A lot of them, strangely, were trained as doctors. Oh, a lot of them had gone to France. Maybe yeah. they were trained in Mkhitaryan schools in uh, in Italy. Mm-hmm. It's true too. And then they returned to the capital and they became, many of them later became the architects of the constitution. Yeah. And they were part of that, those governing bodies. They were thinkers and actors in that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they wore many hats. They were often writers, they were often teachers, newspaper editors, sometimes all at the same time, translators. And there wasn't one club that came together and said, this is going to be it. It was, how did, did it just kind of naturally come to what we know today or was there? Finally, a kind of like a, you know, an institution that said this is going to be it. No, there was never an institution. Y- That's the very time. interesting part about this particular case is that everything is, uh, I should say, everything is very slow. Things right. are slow to change uh, and it's very haphazard. Well, so then how can we be so sure of ourselves to say this isn't this or this isn't that when even the like uh, formation of this thing was, you know, haphazard, as you said, or fluid or whatever, uh, you know, you know, everything should be done with a grain of salt. You know, hey, you know, they said this, but, you know, there was, you know, uh, it wasn't a consensus of a community or no, whatever. These are decisions you know? by specific people that then get written down. And then once you lose touch with that history, you see what they've written down as if it is the rule, yeah. the thing to follow, forgetting or not even knowing that uh, these are sometimes arbitrary decisions. Well, so the the uh, the Mkhitaris are, you know, kind of, you know, developing an Armenian that can kind of uh, adapt to the greater population, but they're still trying to bring forward uh, Karapar, um, you know, as a, as a, as like still the, the goal of it of it was still to make it the common uh, reading and mm-hmm. uh, grammatical style. Um, but what were some of the difficulties they had with trying to, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, clean that, uh, not clean, but develop Karapar into a more standardized modern form? So 
Right. What we have to remember is that classical Armenian doesn't disappear. Right. It's and still in the churches today. And it's still in the churches today. And then up until the very end of the 19th century, there were still advocates, quite powerful people, who thought that it was um, a viable idea that classical Armenian would be the language of the press, would be the language of education, which it was yeah. for a very long time. Uh, that it would be the national language. But for anyone who studied classical Armenian, they know that it is a very difficult language to master. And it is very distinct from spoken forms of Armenian. So there were some practical challenges there. Right. Would they be able to use it in their daily lives when, you know, there's even today with a lot of new technology, we don't have the words to describe certain things in Armenian, or maybe we do, we have to create it. But maybe they had that feeling too of like, look, in this Karapar dictionary, we don't have the terms to, you know, uh, discuss modern things, you know, uh, would that, is that an example of maybe a difficulty of using the old Karapar or... Um, so the Mukhitarians were pretty good because they would create classically inspired terms. They were creating terms, okay. They were creating terms. They I were creating you. terms. That wasn't the, the biggest problem. Uh, the you, issue was yeah. that there was a opposition group and Ooh. the opposition group... Uh, was advocating for a modern variety of Armenian turned into the national language. So I see. we have two groups, and they're both trying to determine what the, quote, national language will be. I see. Are we going to go all the way and create something new, or are we going to kind of, uh, we're going to use the old one, but maybe like adjust it a little bit? Exactly. You know? Okay, gotcha. In, infuse it with some new terms for our modern life. Got it. And we'd be good to go. So that's what the advocates of classical Armenian wanted. The advocates for modern Armenian were seeing in Europe, in the US, in other parts of the Ottoman Empire, that a modern language was a symbol of progress, modernity, um, civilization, right. all of these terms that they are uh, the West. obsessed with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, yeah. No, um, and uh, it seems like they ended up winning, though, or, you know what I mean? How did, you know, uh, how did they end up, let's say, convincing the other side or just overpowering the other side? And uh, So for a very long time, they were drowned out. Their yeah. voices were drowned out. Because the church... Still very powerful institution. Still very powerful, yeah. but it wasn't even just priests, and it wasn't even just the patriarchate that was advocating for classical Armenian. You had a lot of other laymen who thought that it was a great idea. Traditionalists or whatever, yeah. Yeah, more conservative people yeah. in, uh, in intellectual circles. So right. they were the dominant voice. Yeah. But then we get into the late 1870s, 1880s. By the 1890s, this is a stale conversation. And more and more, it's the classical, the voices that are advocating for classical Armenian that are being drowned out. Yeah. And when we look at the history of standardization, not just in uh, the Armenian case, but more generally, the process of building dictionaries, the process of uh, writing grammar books, that only happens once your competition has been squashed. Yeah. So by 1890 we see that classical Armenian is no longer a contender for the national language. And at that point, more and more uh, dictionaries are coming out and uh, grammar books are being written. The language is being taught as a separate and independent language from classical Armenian in schools, which was a very big deal and yeah. took a very long time to happen. The Western Armenian that we know today, uh, was it? You know, was there something fundamentally successful about its standardization that became not popular but institutionalized throughout the diaspora or throughout the Western Armenian world that the Karapar didn't have um, or was it just because of the overpowering figures of that time choosing it, it just became so. Does that make sense? It's more the second. It's yeah. more the second. And what's unfortunate and sort of surprising to me is that the advocates of classical Armenian, for so long, modern Armenian was referring and talking about advocates of classical Armenian as aristocratic, elitist, elitist. Um, not in touch with the ordinary from, people. Yeah. And then once it succeeds and once it's squashed the classical opposition, what happens, unfortunately, is that modern Armenian takes that role and 
it's it's the bourgeoisie well that's that's all of history around this time by the way sorry to cut you off but like the no the nobility in the church you know were being uh revolutionary out of their uh institutions and societies who maybe held this were the karapar in this uh in this uh, example and the 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 middle class bourgeoisie of paris or whatever took over you know we're here for political rights and democracy but then people end up revolting against them because then they end up becoming their own elitist class of nobility and this and that. So, so that's I, exactly what happens. Yeah, no, that's I, exactly I kind of see exactly it. That's so funny. In the 1890s, the early 1900s, <laughs> those urban intellectuals that advocated for modern Armenian yeah. that then become the elite class when they had once been subordinated. Yeah. And the provincial intellectuals then accuse them of being aristocratic which they are uh, of being elitist which they are I mean, they live in istanbul it's a nice city and they say well we need to infuse our sta- standard language with some authentic materials mm-hmm. and uh, what they would criticize specifically about the language were uh, all of these gallicisms all of these phrases and words that were patterned on french oh and they say which we have a lot of in armenian well, I don't know if that's that's just a word, but I always think about le pomme de terre. Never mind. <laughs> no, no, that's that's the kind of thing that they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and we see it with literary Armenian too. So when we read literature from the 1890s, you see, uh, and if you know French, you see uh, that they're thinking in French well, that was and they're also, writing in Armenian. That was also the international language at that time. Right. And I, the the quick thing that just came to my mind, which is a tangent and random, was oh, is this when Mercy came around to our vernacular or whatever? But it's a I don't know about I don't, that. Yeah, I know it was, uh, <laughs> it was just I wasn't gonna say it, but then I had to say it. So, um, well, so the so this like just before the genocide phases, now there's like this new elitist class of let's say bourgeoisie intellectuals versus the the provincial revolutionaries, let's say, mm-hmm. or um, pe- man of the people or uh, etc. Um, and but there's a conflict about what the they uh, that it's the standardized Western Armenian of the people in the city of the intellectuals is still not common enough for the people. That's, they think that's that it's issue. not Armenian enough, oh. so that's their critique. Interesting. And the way that they propose to harmonize it is by infusing into the standard language <laughs> elements from Europe. No, no. no. The provincial intellectuals are saying we need to take elements from our spoken languages. I see. And include them in the dictionaries of Western Armenian. So it'd be like phrases that we use in Armenian that probably would have been not considered, or is it more just specifically grammar and uh, 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 vocab? So what's interesting is these intellectuals from the provinces are not too concerned with the grammar. They say that we've been using a form that's grammatically based on the Constantinople variety, mm-hmm. we're not seeking to change the rules any grammar. That way. Yeah. But what we can change easily are the words that we're using and the words that we're putting in our dictionary. Interesting. So uh, this, didn't, this wasn't wildly successful. What we see is that very specific terms having to do with minerals and botany and sometimes food words, agricultural terms, these are the the new editions. These are the new editions. But those are words that never existed <laughs> in the Constantinople variety of Armenian. So it's not as if they were uh, so, so was, not that they were replacing anything. They were just being added. Well, so was Kednach and Soda an example of that? Like it's a field, it's an it's a food word. I mean, I'm trying to think of some other examples of what that could be. Would you happen to know any? Yeah, so there's one Lolig. Lolik. I have to say about Lolik, actually, it's so interesting that the rest of the world uses the a variation of tomato, which is an Aztec word. I love it. Mm-hmm. Talhatl or something like that. Nalhatl. Um, but we have a unique word for it, which I think yeah. is, well, I kind of like that. I was like, oh, look how unique we are. But um, but that is so funny. Yeah, we do have a unique word for that. Any other ones that we would know of? None that come to mind. Again, they're very obscure, most of them. Yeah. Was it real? Was it okay? We have these new standardized versions. You know, they're trying to incorporate it more into society. But you know, do we see through you know the history that it did have a positive effect or a negative effect in terms of it being becoming a tool uh, for the Armenian population? Uh, did did the goal essentially reach its goal for standardizing? 
If the goal was to have a single version of Armenian that everybody in the Ottoman Empire used, then it didn't succeed. Right. Why? Because there was still dialect, or because not everyone bought into it immediately, or well, because not everybody had access to or it. capacity so, to learn it. And right, there yeah. were a lot of fundamental infrastructural right. deficiencies. Again, that, it was being done decentralized, not through a government institution. So, and even in government institutions, sometimes it's hard to reach far do it. corners of of your empire. The isolated mountaintops where all the Armenians lived in the first place. Right, and if you can't read at all, first you have. Maybe it's a little bit easier to teach children. You can establish a school, but that requires money and it requires teachers. And these are things that not all villages had at a certain time. I see. So they're like, ha- like you're doing a project without even the capacity to even like really implement the whole thing. And yeah, it's going to kind of a confusion there then you're establishing in your society, you know. So in certain or pockets, just, it was successful yeah. and urban pockets. Uh, but that's not to say in all of the city, there's a class dimension to this too yeah uh but well so then do you say then like maybe that's all it is at the end of the day there's always going to be this kind of elitist purist like kind of mentality with not just language it could be with like you know classical music you know this is the sophisticated music this is the sophisticated way you eat food whatever it is is it just a byproduct of that of like you know uh richer or whatever powerful people you know thinking what they're doing is the most correct and then just, you know... Dictating. Dictating and discriminating against those that don't do it. Like the the people below, the social economic classes below them are just doing it wrong because they're poorer at the end of the day or they're not as classy. It could just be a byproduct of that, huh? I don't know. So in the Ottoman period, even up to the genocide, there was an acknowledgement that people would speak differently outside the capital. So they weren't trying to get rid of the dialects. That wasn't... Uh, the goal, even though in other cultural contexts, sometimes that is the goal. So in France, there was an active campaign yeah. against dialect, dialects, trying to eradicate them. We don't see that yeah. in Western Armenian history. I think it's but we, yeah. you wouldn't be educated in your dialect. You wouldn't learn uh, math. You wouldn't learn uh, whatever. anything. History, whatever, yeah. Right, so if you were to become educated you would have a sort of what they call diglossia. At school, you would speak one mm. language or one variety of Armenian, and at home, you would speak another. Yeah. A bit that got, you know, kind of difficult for some people. And um, so after, uh, so you were saying it wasn't successful within the Ottoman Empire. It was too decentralized. The institutions weren't there. Uh, but, you know, does that mean that maybe post-genocide it was successful because everything was kind of broken down or because the villages were all gone and everyone is in the same refugee camp? So this know? is a theory that I have that okay. I haven't uh, explored too much, but it's something that I Think would, about, yeah. Yeah, it's something that I'd like to end my dissertation reflecting on and then maybe it will be an additional project because that's where all the arrows are pointing. Um, well, because I know that... Uh, they brought in Armenian teachers from uh, Istanbul and Constantinople after the genocide. They brought them to Lebanon, and they were some of the early instructors in Armenian language to that new generation. Um, because I mean, even I mean, we hear it today. A lot of our friends who had grandparents from Lebanon, they didn't speak a lot of Armenian. They still spoke Turkish very commonly. That post-genocide generation, uh, you know, especially if most of their family was gone and they were young, you know, they weren't. They didn't bring with them their dialect or their regional parpar um and so uh they were freshly or i don't know they and and now they're being taught the standardized armenian and we went from there i mean uh so i like the theory that uh you're kind of getting at i get it you know um because it makes sense right if you're not um if you're not from an armenian speaking household but you are part of an armenian community in lebanon in the 1930s or the 1940s the only variety of Armenian that you're exposed to is the standard variety that you're learning in school. Mm-hmm. And to you, that is Armenian. That is Western Armenian. And that is the one form that you both speak and write. Well, let me ask you this. Let's say there was no standardized Western Armenian and we had all these Armenians in Lebanon who escaped the genocide. Would it be possible to introduce to them an Armenian uh, that they could learn and speak Armenian again <laughs> without a standardized version. Like, you'd have to, again, probably pick a variety, you know, and um, and obviously maybe the church Armenian, the Karapara, wouldn't have worked either, you know. So 
not that we got lucky with having the standardized version, but there it was maybe convenient in choosing something to teach these people Armenian. You, you already know. had the textbooks. Yeah. Yeah. The you teachers. You already had the teachers. Yeah. Right. Because at that point, it had been taught in schools for about 20 years. I mean, me growing up, so by the way, my mom's side, they're all from Bolis, uh, all educated women. They're all te- my even my grandma's grandma or mother, where they're all Ar- Armenian school teachers. Uh, my Ar- Armenian nationalism really comes from their end. And I grew up with uh, uh, Makur Hayer and Khosir Hamayakur Hayer. And I mean, mm-hmm. most Bolsahai friends I meet still know a good amount of Turkish in their household. My family, my mom's side, none of us learned it because they only spoke pure, like, you know, clean, pure Armenian in the house. And I couldn't even get through a sentence uh, without uh, being interrupted saying, you said it wrong, you said it wrong, you said it wrong. Granted, I was able to power through. Not everyone is able to do that, obviously. Um, but it's just, it's interesting now for me to, pe- like, I, I have the puzzle, or I have the puzzle pieces now. I could kind of see where that all came from, you know? Um, and at the same time, my Bolsahai side of the family does have a, um, a Karakagan bourgeoisie kind of like, a vi- they, they want to have that vibe too. So it's, it also goes hand in hand with this uh, wannabe elitism and uh, hand in hand with its purism, you know. Uh, we're from the city, we're not from the village, you know, I hear that stuff all the time. But it, it's, it's and we still have this kind of debate today, uh, what's, uh, you know, what's Armenian, what's not Armenian. And it's really cool to see that, not cool, but it goes back from the beginning. You know, it's been, there's been people like us sitting down and talking about it for the last 300 years, you know, and there's still not a common consensus. It's still probably being developed, too. We're seeing how Armenian is even changing today. Um, and so, I mean, what is, you know, what's your big takeaway then from, uh, you know, all the 300 years of your uh, standardization period? Uh, you know, what should we learn from this? What surprises me is how uh, recurrent these themes are. Right, exactly. I mean, even... You mentioned that I start my study with with the Mechitarians. I'm one of Mechitar's main um, fears is that Armenians, without classical Armenian, will lose their sense of identity if they don't have a single shared language. So he's already concerned about dispersion and cultural assimilation, linguistic assimilation, uh, for him religious assimilation because Catholicism. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned, yeah. Um, ultimately, meant distancing yourself from Armenianness, and he was seeing that in Eastern Europe already. That's very interesting. So we still talk about that, right? Yeah, we still talk about fears of assimilation, about losing your language, losing your identity. How important is the language to keeping the identity? You right, know? and. I'm not convinced that that's ever going to change if we're Mm -hmm. still in this paradigm, if we still think about uh, language in this way. But to see the historical, to see these ways of thinking as having a history sort of puts it in perspective. Yeah. You see that you're not battling something new and maybe it will, uh, maybe it will help you to turn to historical sources to see how they grappled with it. Yeah. I'm seeing almost the same words <laughs> the same phrases used in 1850 that we're seeing today and that's what i was getting at earlier it's so funny to see it just this becomes so cyclical and it's and i i get the comfort that you're getting from it you're, you're comfortable and, or you're, the comfort you're seeing is like it's been spoken about it's happening again today and that doesn't mean and that means that it could be very well be the discourse in 100 200 years from now which means that we'll be around and we'll be talking Armenian still. Who knows what it'll look like and what it sounds like, but something will exist. If it's important to people, they'll perpetuate it. Right. And it. I think it is important to people. It is, it's so important to us. And that's where I think the craziness of trying to keep it pure or trying to uh, do this or that with it, um, maybe we feel like we're not succeeding in incorporating in our daily lives or teaching it to the next generation, but still it's important to them. Um, I mean, is you know, what would you say, you know, what are some ways that we can maybe incorporate it in our, what do you tell your students to, if they want to keep Western Armenian, you know, uh, alive in their daily routine? Uh, Since so much of everyone's daily routine revolves around social media, one of the first things I tell them when they start the class is to follow some 
accounts on Instagram. Some Armenian accounts, some, whatever. Like Alvor Paner. Yeah. There's some. Um, is I love Bukhbachag. I love Bukhbachag. So these are funny, usually funny. Little meme, yeah. Little memes with short sentences. Yeah. So short that if you don't know a word or two, it's not going to take you very much time to look it up. And look, there you've given yourself a dose of Armenian for the day. Yeah. Boost of confidence. And you're, you're just being exposed to it. I mean, that's why I like uh, Garin Angorinyan's um, Hayren Haiku. It's the same thing where they're very short. Or in general with poetry is like, I tried reading books and I was like, this is too much. Reading short haikus in Armenian was something that I can do in a sitting um, and uh, mostly understand. And if not, you could look up the word and actually digest what you're reading. And right, so it's another thing to to tell somebody to sit and read a newspaper article. I mean, that kind of language is much more difficult if you're not used to it. Mm -hmm. This isn't to say that you shouldn't, uh, if this is something that's important to you and you want to increase your exposure to that kind of uh, language that you shouldn't do, absolutely, if that is a goal of yours, you can work towards it. But it doesn't need to be your first stop. You can start with haikus you could start with instagram, instagram posts pages, yeah you don't need to start with uh, an article in hyronique jennifer thank you so much for being here with us today this was so great and i have a lot more questions but uh we'll save it for when we can buy your book and read it <laughs> um any idea when that might be coming out when will you be finishing your studies do you know your doctorate i'll be finishing the dissertation uh, this time next year oh nice but it usually takes a while for it to be turned into a book. All right, near future, we'll near say. Future. Yeah, sounds good. Looking forward to it and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you, Haig. You are listening to Haiduk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Haig Minasian, and we're just a couple of Armenians talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.